You're listening to Monocle's Houseview, first broadcast on the 6th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's Houseview. Coming up today... From a White House perspective, it looks like this has opened the door to now begin an attack on the Democrats for corrupt practices. An ending to U.S. impeachment proceedings that surprised no one. My guests, Pippa Mungren and James Rogers, will discuss that and the day's other news, including questions about funding the BBC, but how important is a national broadcaster and refuge in radio? Are gentler media finding favour in the face of fiendish foul news? Plus... It's a significant moment in the campaign, both for a politician who was largely unknown a year ago, but also for an openly gay man whose credibility and viability as a presidential candidate are strengthening. Monocle's Thomas Lewis reflects on confusion in Iowa. I'm Paul Osborne. Monocle's House View starts now. Hello, welcome to the show. Now, as Congress returns the acquittal that everyone always knew it would, Donald Trump supporters say he has been exonerated, but his opponents say they have shone a light on the president's corrupt and underhand behaviour. But has any of this changed the minds of any voters? Well, with me to discuss this and some of the day's other big stories are the head of journalism at City University in London, James Rogers, and Pippa Malmgren, who's the co-founder of H Robotics and a former economic advisor to George W. Bush. Um, amid the relief there is at the White House. There must be some concern at the idea that they now have to get an impeached president re-elected. So that is one way of looking at it. But uh, my guess is the way they're they're looking at it, it's not that. They're looking at it and saying, well, actually, this has reinforced the support amongst the people who were in favor of the president. It's increased the support for him amongst those uh, who were marginal but now feel that he's been unfairly attacked. And it's, of course, also raised the question about Joe Biden and his son and the corruption on the other side. So it's from a from a White House perspective, it looks like this has opened the door to now begin an attack on the Democrats for corrupt practices where maybe charges stick as opposed to that they didn't hear. This is the thing. You have to look at these things from their perspective, even if you disagree with it, so that you comprehend you know, how do they register these events. The, the White House sees this as a victory. I mean, that's a really interesting idea, isn't it, James, that, that in, in one respect, what they have done is they have taken these allegations around Ukraine, around Joe Biden's son, uh, and, and some, some of that mud will stick now. During the campaign, they can just keep saying, oh, well, Ukraine, Biden, you know... Well, I think so. It has, you know, as Pippa says, it's brought it out into the public domain. But there's been nothing that we've seen right throughout this entire process that suggests that President Trump's core constituency has been shaken or moved by this in any way. They don't really see, you know, this is they they see this really as sort of perfectly reasonable behaviour to a very large extent. And even if they don't, they don't think it's see it uh, in sufficiently poor a light to to make them change their minds about him. I mean, I think it is interesting. You know, um, it, they, I think they do see it as a victory. You know. You've probably read that uh, the White House press release subsequent to this uh, described Mitt Romney as a failed presidential candidate, which seems a pretty low swipe, but also says, you know, you've done your best, you know, you've tried, and Mitt Romney has perhaps, one can guess at his motives, perhaps he feels himself as trying to be on the right side of history. But no, he's roundly defeated and he's being sneered at as such. Yeah, Trump is clearly going to try and cause as much damage as he can 
to, to the Democrats. And just in terms of the political strategy on, on that side of the fence, given that there was never any question of a Senate trial actually voting to remove Trump from office, what was the purpose? Was the purpose, in the same way that you could say the White House wanted to get the Biden stuff out there, was the purpose of this just to be able to hammer it home on television night after night after night, Donald Trump is corrupt, Donald Trump is, a, is an inherently dodgy character, even if they knew it would not end in success? Well, it seems to be. And uh, as a person who's you know grown up in politics and worked for a couple of presidents, my father worked for four presidents, um, I think that this was an error. Or it could have been done, but while pursuing the real story, which is the Democrats need to find first a candidate and second a story. And I think the lack of a story is the bigger problem right now. The old story was the economy is terrible, vote for us. Well, this is no longer true. The economy is amazing. It is firing on all engines, and most Americans are pretty happy with it. Um, and notice that the president talked a lot about African Americans benefiting from the economy in his State of the Union speech. So there they need some kind of answer. And second, hating the president is not enough of a campaign platform to get elected on. They need to have some other reason why the public should shift. And currently, the two sort of leading or the two or three leading candidates in the Democrat process all bring economic policies that involve bigger government, higher taxes, more regulation, all of which the entrepreneurial class of America, which is kind of the guiding theme of an American, uh, is antithetical to their interests. I mean, even the African-American community, think about it this way. Why did more of them vote for Trump than anyone imagined they would, right, in the last election, especially black women? The thing is, because the corporate world locks them out and won't hire them, they have no alternative. They have to be entrepreneurs. And if you're an entrepreneur, you're trying to put food in the fridge, your view is, I don't like the way this guy sounds, but I don't want my taxes to go up. I don't want regulations to rise. And they'll vote with their pocketbook before they vote with their heart in a lot of cases. Um, it is hard to imagine anything happening between now and November that would fundamentally shift a significant proportion of voters. We were speaking earlier to someone who talked about independent voters, you know, what's the impact? And it feels, certainly from this side of the Atlantic, it feels like there aren't any independents left in America, that there are, there's a cohort of people who are going to vote for Donald Trump, whatever he says or does, and there's a cohort of people who are going to vote for whoever the Democratic nominee is because it's not Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing that one can foresee that might change what we expect may well happen in November is some major foreign policy disaster that has real consequences for the United States at home. It's difficult to see what that could be, but obviously um, the current uh, rising tension with Iran might potentially produce something of that nature. Whether it would be enough to unseat uh, or, or to damage Mr Trump's standing sufficiently is another matter. But, I mean, just to return briefly to the question as to why the Democrats did this uh, when it was pretty clear from the outset that they were going to lose. A couple of points on that. Perhaps to a sense, they, in a sense, they felt that they had to try it, that the people were going to ask, well, you know, uh, you were in Congress when this was going on. Why didn't you do anything about it? Uh, and secondly, I think it's been remarkable. There's been a lot of articles recently, a lot of coverage about how this process started in the 19th century. And you can also see that it's no longer really fit for purpose because it was about evidence-based judgment of, of misdeeds in public office. And now that's completely gone out the window. And it's just... And that's why Mitt Romney's been such a big story, because he broke the party line. If you 
either the same party the president, then you don't vote to impeach him. End of. This evidence and the whole process, the way it was designed, has completely gone out the window. Pippa Malmgren and James Rogers, and we'll be back with them in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Marcus Hippie with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Paul. There have been calls for fresh elections in the eastern German state of Thuringia after politicians from Angela Merkel's CDU party used votes from the far-right AFD to oust the incumbent left-wing state premier. Germany's chancellor has been accused of breaking a post-war promise never to make a pact with the party from the far-right. A high-speed train has derailed in northern Italy, killing its two drivers and interrupting traffic on the busy line between Milan and Bologna. A further 27 people were hurt, but none had life-threatening injuries. The train was on its way from Milan to the southern city of Salerno. And the Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez is meeting the Catalan leader Kim Torra to discuss the ongoing political crisis over the region's independence. In a highly symbolic gesture, Prime Minister Sanchez is travelling to the Catalan capital of Barcelona for the encounter. This will be their first meeting since nine independence leaders were jailed last October for sedition. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Paul. Marcus, thank you. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne. With me, James Rogers and Pippa Malmgren. Next to the future of one of the world's most respected broadcasters. The BBC was told this week that the licence fee, the compulsory charge that funds it, will increase by £3 a year. But at the same time, the government is to review whether or not it should continue to be a crime to refuse to pay it. That has been interpreted, James, as an opening move in a long-expected war on the BBC. And I think that's a pretty fair interpretation, actually. I think the BBC, uh, which is going to be 100 years years old in two years' time, incidentally, uh, finds itself at the most difficult time in its entire history. Um, Listeners may know that the Director-General has just moved on to take another job. The new Director-General, and I'll take a guess and say whoever she may be, because it's high time that the uh, organisation had a a woman Director-General, will take the job on probably at the hardest time ever for the reason of the the revenue crisis, the falling audiences, in addition to that, a a government that's openly hostile to them to the extent that senior ministers have ceased to cooperate with the main programme. I have to declare an interest here. I worked for the corporation as one of their journalists for 15 years before I became an academic. Um, But I think... um, as a consumer of the BBC, as a former BBC employer and as an observer of media issues, I don't think it looks good for them. And I think largely because I think actually, you know, the way that the funding was set up uh, was a model that was fit for purpose a century ago. I find it quite remarkable that it survived this long and I can't honestly see it surviving that much longer, particularly given the technological and political pressures that's going to be under. I mean, it is the funding model, isn't it? That, that I suppose in the UK, we're relatively used to this idea that we hand over this money every year and it pays for the BBC. But that, that was before streaming and subscription television and all of these other things. There are other models on the paper. In, in the United States, public broadcasting is basically funded by endowments and begging on air. Yeah. Well, look. Every single business in every single sector of the world economy is being forced to reinvent itself because of technological change. And so the BBC is not immune from that process. So, yes, I I agree. This is the most difficult moment. It is really interesting that the head of the BBC left at this particular juncture. Uh, But it's also an opportunity for the BBC to engage in the same reinvention process that everybody else is having to go through. I gave a briefing um, for one of the biggest media organizations in this country not that long ago, and they were complaining about Trump and his tweets. 
And I asked the question, well, why are you reporting them? And they said, well, because we need the clicks. We need the eyeballs. We need the traffic. It's the cash. And I'm like, okay, then your business model is actually benefiting from Trump tweeting. And they went, yeah, even though we hate him. Okay, if you're not comfortable with this, you need a different business model. And What's it going to be? And this is the really interesting question is how, how do you generate the interest in the listenership without being d- descending into the maelstrom of you know the least common denominator? And that was what we always looked to the BBC to do, to rise above that noise and the din. But they're getting drawn into it. And I think it will require some really decisive leadership at the BBC to make those serious choices about the trade-off between popularity and cash flow. Th- those of us, James, who, and, and I should declare an interest too, I've, I've, I've received the BBC shilling uh, in, in my career. Um, those of us who've passed through the doors and those who have an affection for it always look at these kind of situations in sort of apocalyptic terms. The licence fee ends, the sky will fall in, that will be the end of the BBC. But the BBC has a unique voice and a unique position. It is respected around the world. And there is a possibility, isn't there, that if, if it turned to its audience and said much as The Guardian has started doing, and said, look, you know, any chance you could stump up 10 quid a month to pay for this, that actually people would do. Possibly. I mean, I do, as somebody who teaches, you know, teaches undergraduate and postgraduate students, I'm very much aware that there is a generation, if not two, behind me who are used to getting absolutely everything for free. And if you look back at newspaper executives who are speaking in the last decade or so about the period in the 1990s where they started putting things online, they say they made a colossal mistake. You know, there are some uh, legacy newspapers who've done very well with the digital transformation. Two examples one often thinks of are the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal. And there's two good reasons why they've done well. Firstly, because they're selling important information to an elite audience, and also because, frankly, a lot of people aren't paying for it themselves, their companies are. That model has not is not sort of widely copyable, and I think you know you do have a lot of people who don't expect to pay for anything now, and you could argue the BBC's encouraged that to an extent by its website. That's certainly something that's annoyed the newspapers in this country. When the BBC was set up in the way that it was, it could never have been foreseen that they'd be competitors like that. Um, and I'm not sure how well that works for the Guardian. I mean, I'm not sure how well some members of the audience thinks, you know, if you like that, send us 50 quid. You just sort of think, well, really, how But that's the funding model, model of public radio, public television in the US, is basically yeah. saying, if you like watching all these British dramas, if you like listening to these live concerts in Carnegie Hall, could you send us $10? Yeah. It's WikiLeaks as well, you know? Yeah. Like, everybody is basically reaching out. Um, so then it really comes down to not the question, would, will you pay? It comes down to the question of, is it worth paying for this? And I think that's the bigger brand issue that the BBC Mm. has. Um, And I think there's a big debate going on about um, not just the BBC, but in all journalism, uh, whether journalism has become biased, you know, whether it's not representing both sides of an issue and on every issue. I mean, obviously, the big one in this country has been Brexit in recent years. Um, And I do think there's a question of who is the audience? In the U.S., for example, the international press always cover the issues from the perspective of the coastlines because all their contacts are in New York and L.A., San Francisco. But the real people who decide who the president's going to be are in the middle of the country. But how often do the British press cover the news from the middle of the U.S.? And similarly, it was an issue here of the London view versus the rest of the country. And who's out covering the rest of the country? So the question of what is the news is the question. It's fascinating, isn't it, that the BBC does have that network of journalists. It has journalists up and down the country. It's funding 
200 or so journalists in local newspapers who are out there to find out what's yeah. going on at a grassroots level. But they don't seem to be in a position or the, the, the organisation isn't structured in such a way that they can funnel that back to the people in London who decide what leads the 10 o'clock news. Well, I mean, I suspect that's probably in the process of changing. And I think it's also true to say that there are periods throughout the history of journalism where uh, political views have been particularly polarised and that objective, impartial model has struggled to survive. You know, there's a lot of research done, for example, on the United States in the 1960s and not just about the coverage of the Vietnam War, although that has been researched a great deal and the effect of it may or may not have had on political policy. But also that time when you've got a generation is coming through with very new ideas and doesn't accept what the older generation is telling them. At that time, the older generation was very much part of that, you know, that great, uh, particularly American, but on the wider English-speaking world, idea of impartial, objective journalism. And the younger generation was, no, it's not like that. We're going to say, we're going to write in different ways. We're not going to stick to the conventional forms. We're going to write narrative non-fiction and so on and so on. So we are maybe going through one of those changes. And I think it's also perhaps we're going through a time when in this country and probably in the United States too, some opinions are so polarised that it's very, very difficult for anybody to try to tread that objective line through the middle without getting roundly criticised for it. It's not all bad news though for the BBC this week it's classical music and art station Radio 3 reported its highest ever audience in the last three months of 2019. This of course was the period when Brexit speculation reached fever pitch and included the general election handily timed just before Christmas. Um, The one thing uh, Pippa about Radio 3 is it is entirely or almost entirely free of news. If you want to exist in a world where no one is going to trouble you with the, the world outside and listen to some lovely music at the same time. It's a reasonable place to hide. Well, I would say, OK, yes, but I think radio listenership is also rising more generally. And I think it's a super important signal, indicator of what's happening out there. Uh, there was a, physicist, uh, a geophysicist called Buckminster Fuller who started writing in the early late 1920s about the knowledge doubling curve. And what he basically said is knowledge or data information is doubling at an ever faster rate. And in 2020, IBM estimates that the rate at which it's doubling is literally every 12 hours. It was every 250 years and 1900, but today it's every literally half a day. So what does it mean? It means there's too much to read. You can't keep up. Your eyes simply can't absorb enough information from either reading or watching television. You have to open your ears and listen to give you an additional sensory perception mode. And I think haptics are becoming more important, which is all about touch and feeling. So, for example, if you're driving your car over the speed limit, it used to be that it gave you a little ping, ping, ping. But now, because you're so caught up in the debate about Trump, you're not even listening. You don't hear the ping, ping, ping because you're listening to the radio. So now the seat begins to buzz. It begins to physically give you a signal that you're over the speed limit. I think we're going to see humans opening up their sensory perception to deal with this overwhelming flow of information. And actually, this is how we used to be in the Middle Ages before the printing press came along. And maybe it's a healthier way to process reality uh, because the way you think about each version is very different. So I, I'm, I think the rise in listenership to radio is reflecting the 
overwhelming amount of data that people have to process. I mean, fundamentally, James, we are sitting in a radio studio saying, isn't radio a marvellous thing? Yeah. (laughs) We we would say that, wouldn't we? Well, I must admit, I I saw this story this morning when I I saw it in the newspaper that I was reading as well as listening to some fairly heavyweight current affairs on the radio at the same time. Uh, But I looked at it and I said, that's me. And I do, I've consciously, I mean, I do listen to Radio 3 sometimes, mostly at the weekend, it's true, sometimes in the early evening. But it is a conscious escape. I mean, there's a story which is told in the BBC and is actually true. There was one uh, Good Friday in the 1930s when the uh, august editors of the BBC decided there was nothing really newsworthy. So at 7 o'clock, which was then the main news, evening news bulletin, probably by way of reassurance to audiences, they came on and the announcer said, good evening, there is no news, here is some piano music. And I bet a lot of people Amazing. would love that these days. I think there's a market for that. I sometimes <laughs> wonder is. if in a newspaper there's a, there's like a call to have a column that has nothing. To simply indicate, you know what, it's okay, like there isn't... I have sat in those newsrooms on those days when you've got 30 minutes to fill and you know, with your hand on your heart, you've got eight minutes of news. And you go, how do we stretch this to 30 minutes there? Oh, there's this guy in Botswana who's done an amazing thing, he's done a stunt with 14 dogs and a bicycle. We can make a three-minute piece out of that, Mm. definitely. And you're you're conning them, you're having them on. This is really important, everybody. But isn't it based on the old model that... There were set amounts of time when you had a live audience listening to you, the television model. But today with streaming, you know, why are podcasts all different links? Because the reader, the listener isn't staying with you because they have 30 minutes. It's because they're interested in what you're saying and they'll stay with you for an hour and a half if it's really good and they'll drop you in two minutes if it's really bad. So the whole business model is based around an old-fashioned notion of the time for which you have a captive audience. Pippa Malmgren and James Rogers, thank you both very much. In a moment, we'll hear from Monocle's correspondent in Iowa. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne. Finally today, the Iowa caucus didn't turn out how anyone expected, except perhaps for Pete Buttigieg. Here's Monocle's Thomas Lewis. So we don't know all the results. But We know, by the time it's all said and done, Iowa, you have shocked the nation. Many U.S. political pundits were in uproar late on Monday night, not only because of the chaos wrought by the glitchy software that thwarted the Iowa caucus, delaying the results and upending for the Democrats the all-important curtain raiser for the process to unseat Donald Trump in November. They were affronted too because one of the candidates had the audacity, they said, to declare victory before any of the results had been released. Iowa, you have shocked the nation, Pete Buttigieg, the former mayor of the Indiana city of South Bend, announced during his address to thousands of boisterous supporters at a university sports hall in Des Moines on Monday night. But Buttigieg himself shocked onlookers with his own political gamble too. Declaring yourself a winner in a contest before a single result has been published is not a move for the faint-hearted. But this is politics after all, and his calculation paid off. It now seems that Buttigieg did come out on top in Iowa, closely behind Bernie Sanders, the progressive senator from Vermont, and clearly ahead of his more famous opponent in the centre ground, Joe Biden, who, it appears, came in fourth place. 
It's a significant moment in the campaign, both for a politician who was largely unknown a year ago, but also for an openly gay man whose credibility and viability as a presidential candidate are strengthening. I'm not surprised at all one voter told me of Pete Buttigieg's standing in Iowa in the hubbub of the Elizabeth Warren caucus night party in a Des Moines conference room on Monday night. People are tired. They know Biden too well. Pete represents something else, he said. Pete Buttigieg's ascent to contender status in Iowa does not guarantee him the nomination. But it could mean a shift among Democratic voters is underway. If, for example, Joe Biden also fails to impress voters in New Hampshire next week, voters elsewhere may well look for a centrist alternative to him, given that many voters appear still to be sceptical that the politics of the hard left, embodied to many by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, can garner national appeal in November's election. That figure could be Buttigieg, or indeed Mike Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, for whom the campaign begins in earnest on Super Tuesday on the 3rd of March, when the states he's ploughed with TV ads for several months now finally get to vote. His standing in the race, it's worth noting, has quietly ascended in recent opinion polls. But for Pete Buttigieg, his supporters and even the history writers of US presidential politics, the Iowa caucus marked a milestone. It has also mapped out the strengths and indeed the weaknesses of Mayor Pete's campaign, which will be tested further in New Hampshire next Tuesday. For Monocle in Des Moines, Iowa, I'm Thomas Lewis. Thomas Lewis there. And that's it for today. Monocle's House You was produced by Augustin Machilari and researched by Tia Thomas-Alexander. Our studio managers were Steph Chung and Christy Evans. Uh, coming up at 2000 London time, a new edition of The Urbanist and Monocle's House You returns at the same time, 1800 here in London tomorrow. For now, though, from me, Paul Osborne, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>